0: Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Turn with me to John chapter 19, 18 this morning, John 18, I almost said 19 again, I don't know why, probably because I've been in this passage all week and I'm like, man, it's been so good, so convicting that maybe I just want to move on to 19, but I got to share it with you because It's awesome. John chapter 18, and uh, stand with me if you would, please, and we are going to read our passage this morning. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in uh, verse 12. Here's what it says. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officer of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to, to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me, heard, heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by Jesus struck with his hand, struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man who's... Peter, whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. For, Lord, this particular account of these two trials. Lord, it is the reality for all of us that we will either faithfully walk through the trial, God, or we will fall unfaithfully, Lord. But we will go through trials. And we ask you today, God, that you just instill the faith for us to believe, God, to trust. And most importantly, God, that we fear the right person. Lord, we ask that you would just move in our hearts this morning, that you would... Remove anything that would distract us, God, because you have something to say to us this morning. And so we want to hear from you. We ask that you remove me out of the way, God, that your Holy Spirit would just speak to us this morning. Bring your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were with us last week, you'll recall that the message was entitled The Tale of Two Gardens. The Tale of Two Gardens. And the reason it was entitled that was because we know that the the battle began in a garden for life, in the Garden of Eden. and Of course, the fall came as a result of Adam failing in the garden. And and then we find that life also will be restored through a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is there with with his disciples This very night, you recall that he had to cross over the bloody brook Kidron, which is a representation where the Passover lamb blood was flowing through that little stream. Jesus would have to cross that to get to the garden that he would go and he would pour his heart out before the Lord. He crossed that brook being reminded that he was about to pour his blood out, that he was about to become the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He then comes to this garden called Gethsemane, where he would now prepare for his final act. Now, you have to understand up to this point how much Jesus has already done. You have to realize that Jesus Christ is God, and his first mission was to become a man, that he would set aside his glory. The Bible says that he would humble himself, that he would take on the form of a servant. He'd become obedient even to death. Jesus came down for you and I. That was the first part of his mission. He had to come. But but it doesn't stop there. He became a man, which the Bible goes on to describe even John the Baptist. The first time he see him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus became a man who would become a lamb. The Lamb of God that would be slain for you and I. But it doesn't stop there. For we know prophetically that in Psalm 22, it tells us in verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people, Jesus Christ would not stop at becoming a lamb. He would then become a worm for you and I. Now, in the Hebrew, in this particular passage, there is that word there that, that is being described as Jesus being a worm. It is the word tola. In the Greek, it is a, I mean the Hebrew. It is a very interesting word because it means crimson or scarlet. It's describing a color. It's actually pointing to a specific worm. It's called the Hermes worm. Now, th- this particular worm is interesting because it would find itself attaching to a tree, and it was there that it would give life, that it would birth. The, the female would attach itself to an oak tree, a specific one in Israel, and it would... Uh, you know, lay its eggs underneath the body of the, the mother. And what would happen then is as the babies were laying underneath the mother, they would begin to eat away at her to stay alive, to grow. They were literally eating off her flesh. And then what would end up happening is once those babies were sustained enough that, you know, whatever the period of time is that God had determined... The the mother would just burst in this crimson kind of fluid would come and stain the tree and stain the babies. They would be stained forever. But the tree itself, it's interesting. After three days, the body of that mother that was burst on that little spot on the tree would curl up into a heart shape, become white as snow, and fall off the tree. It's a picture of Jesus Christ he has he he became a man who became a lamb who became a worm for you and I and he is in this garden preparing himself for this very thing He he has been arrested already he took eight of his disciples let me back up just continue to help you, bring, bring you along to where we get to where we are this morning. He brings all his disciples to the gates of that garden and he leaves eight outside, but he takes his inner three inside and he says something very important to them. He says, you three, watch and pray, listen very carefully, that you may not enter into temptation. You see, Jesus is in this garden praying against temptation. And he's telling his disciples, You too are going to be tempted. You too need to pray. And of course, we know Jesus asked the Father three times If there's any way that you can let this cup pass from me, let it be. But not my will, your will be done. And of course, the Lord says, There is no other way. And so Jesus is arrested. Now we find ourselves up to John chapter 18, verse 12, where. Jesus and one of his disciples who was supposed to be prayed up for this moment will be put on trial. The title of my message is The Tale of Two Trials here. It's not original, but it is, in, the, in fact, what is happening in this passage. There are two trials happening simultaneously, and that's the why John writes it the way that he does. You might think, why is it, why is it switching back and forth? It seems a little choppy. Why don't we just deal with Jesus' trial and then Peter's trial, well, here's the deal, is that John wants us to understand that these trials are happening at the same time. Listen, in the very same court, the very same place in the court of the high priest. And so as we begin here, uh, we find Jesus being delivered to Annas. Now, this is one of six trials that we, we will encounter as we finish out this, this uh, series of the chronological... Uh, Follow, follow Me series, Jesus, the life of Jesus in chronological order. And what we find is the first of six trials. Jesus will be tried three times for in religious courts. He will go to Annas, he will go to Caiaphas, and then when, when daybreak happens, then the, the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas will have a lawful trial, which is sti- it's still unlawful. Everything that happens is unlawful this evening. So there's three trials there. And then Jesus is is turned over to Pilate, then he goes to Herod, and then back to Pilate, Then he goes to the cross. He's got to endure all kinds of questioning. Remember, he's been up all night when he goes to the cross. He carries this heavy beam up the Via Della Rosa to the place called the Skull, Golgotha, where he will be crucified. We pick it up here in verse 12 where he is being bound and taken away. So the band of the soldiers and their captains and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas who for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Jesus, after, listen, after declaring himself as God to these soldiers, then offers his, his wrists up and says, take me. They're stupid enough to do it. And they did. Okay, I'll take you. Twice he told them, I'm God. And so here we find him being bound. The, What happens from this point on is is depicted in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, where it says that he was oppressed, he was afflicted, where he was led uh, like a sheep into slaughter. That's exactly what's happening. Jesus is bound. He is the Lamb of God now, and he is about to be slain. They will strip him like a sheep that goes to, to, to be sheared. They will strip him of his clothes. You can follow Isaiah 53.7 exactly, and you'll see this all these things depicted here. They bring him to Annas, who is not only the father-in-law of the high priest that year, but who is also a high priest. You see, Annas was originally the high priest of Israel. But what happened was the Romans didn't like Power laying with one man. And so what they did is they began to appoint other high priests. They appointed uh, Annas' firstborn son at the Eliezer first. He became the high priest for a year, and right after that, they stripped him of power, and then they gave the high priesthood to Caiaphas. You see, to the Jews, the religious people of that day, they believed that Annas was the high priest, not Caiaphas. Caiaphas was appointed by man. Annas, they believe, was appointed by the Lord. Now, you have to understand something about this man. He is in control of the temple. This guy is ruthless. In fact, in the Talmud, it writes about Annas and his sons and his son-in-law, that they were ruthless, that as people would come to the temple to worship God, that they would be beaten, stricken with rods if they wouldn't pay the price. Annas was the one that made God's house a den of robbers. And it was him. He will stand before the Lord one day. He was literally like the temple mafia boss. And they would, they would literally uh, you know, make people pay or they would beat them. You would come to the temple and you would bring your own sacrifice. The, the inspectors would come out. They'd look at the sacrifice and go, no, 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 this has a spot on it. You have to bring a spotless lamb, a spotless sacrifice. Oh, we have some over here you have to buy in order to make the sacrifice. Of course... It was the law that required a man to make a sacrifice so you had no choice. It was a racket. They were ripping the people off. And it was all under the power of Annas. Now, this dude was just a ruthless guy, man. And, uh, you know, we understand when Jesus, you can put the picture together how, how he viewed Jesus because Jesus went into the temple when he first went on mission, you know, and he cleansed the temple. Guess what? That screwed up their cash flow. Uh, made, a, made a mess of their, uh, you know, their cash flow in the temple. He did it again just earlier this week. These guys are furious with Jesus because he's stripping their, their pocketbooks. He's taking away their livelihood. And so you can imagine, it is very much a mafia-like mentality that is trying to lynch Jesus and crucify him. And so it tells us here that Annas, you know, is the high priest of Caiaphas, who was the one that declared that it was best for Israel, that one man should die for them all. I want to read the account to you in John chapter 11, verses 47 through 53. Here's what it says. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man, he's speaking of Jesus, performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest, listen, that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He said this, he he did not say this of his own accord, But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Caiaphas thought that the death of Jesus Christ would be the best for the nation of Israel. Oh, he was right, partially. It would not only be great for the nation of Israel, though it would be great for the entire world because Jesus Christ would shed His blood for everyone. And any and all who would believe would come and they would gain salvation. It's not a matter of being Jewish or Gentile. Jesus came to save, period. It didn't matter whether you were a Jew or Gentile. And that's Old Testament, folks. He chose Israel to be a light unto the nations, not a light unto its own nation. They were supposed to be a light, and they failed, and they withheld, and they are corrupt, and they are ripping off the people, and they have this corrupt religious system that is yielding nothing but eternal damnation. And God isn't going to stand for it. Bible tells us that judgment begins at the house of the Lord. He's coming against his own re- uh, system that he instilled that's been corrupted saying, this is wrong. You need now the gospel. And of course, that's what the gospel is. Exactly what Caiaphas said, that one man should die that we all might be saved. How incredible is that? And so uh, as we move on now, Jesus is brought before Annas and now we look at Peter, Peter is there. He is outside the walls as some of this is going on. We pick it up in verse 15 where it says, Simon Peter followed Jesus. And so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought it, and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also... Are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servant and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also with them, standing and warming himself. Jesus is is arrested, and, and John tells us that Peter and another disciple trail this mob. They they they're, they're following him. What are they doing? They're following Jesus. You have to remember that Jesus. Or Peter said to Jesus, I will not deny you. I will give my life up for you. And that's why he pulled the sword in the garden, and that's why he's trailing this mob, is because Peter is saying, I will trust in myself. I'll do it. I'll save you. And what we find is Peter operating in pride and arrogance, not willing to receive the word of God where Jesus himself said, I will be crucified. No, Peter said, I will save you. How can you save the Savior? You can't save the Savior. So here we find Peter. He's going to do something. Actually, he's going to do the very thing that Jesus told him he was going to do. He's going to deny him three times. Here we find another disciple. Now, there have been all kinds of conjecture about who this other disciple is. We don't know. If God wanted us to know, He would have said it. But here's what we can deduct from Scripture, particularly the Gospel of John, is that in John chapter 20 and in 21, John himself refers to him as the other disciple, as another disciple. He also never mentions himself by name in his own Gospel. He always says, you know, the one whom... Jesus loved. He calls himself another disciple. Very possibly could be John that is the other disciple here. And it makes sense, too, because um, James and John, their, their mother, you know, they, had, they, had, they had, had ties to the priesthood. They had their relatives. They had relatives. You know, they were relatives of um, Elizabeth. And, and um, what was her husband's name? John the Baptist's dad. Zacharias, sorry. He was a priest in the, in the priesthood there, and it was, um, you know, they were they were family. And so John probably connected with Zacharias, you know, when he was in, 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 in there in Jerusalem and the priesthood and all, and that's probably, it's probably him. I don't know, but that, that's very possibly could be that it's John here. Irregardless, we know that this one has a relationship with the high priest, and so he goes right into the courtyard where Jesus is being tried. Of course, Peter's still trailing. And the other disciples, like, where's Peter? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he can't get in. Because this is invitation only. And so, we, we find the other disciple go back, and, and, and because, listen to this, because of the relationship that he had, he was able to get Peter in. Now, I think there's an application for us here, and it is this. If you Put yourself in a Christian bubble and you never ever live outside of that bubble and even the relationships that God wants you to make outside of that Christian bubble to the world that he wants you to reach, if you live in this bubble, you're going to miss the relationship that God designed you to have for his purposes. You know, John has a relationship with this high priest and it's for his purpose. It's For the Lord's purpose, it was God who ordained that. It was God who orchestrated this, that this other disciple would be the one that would follow, that would get Peter in the door so that Peter could fulfill what Jesus said he would do, that he would deny him three times. And so what I'm telling you is that, listen, if you protect yourself, shield yourself, and you only have Christian friends and you only listen to, you know, Christian music and you only do Christian things and you're so Christian that the world cannot relate to you, you know, perhaps you're going to miss the relationships that God is trying to build with you into the world so that you can be used by Him. You know, and what I'm saying is don't become friends of the world To become friends of the world. Be missional about it. God is a missional God. Jesus is a missional Savior. We're supposed to be missional people. And missional people are, are, are supposed to build relationships with lost people that need Jesus Christ, folks. And again, if we shield ourselves from the world, then we're missing the mission. We are missing the mission. We don't have Christian, we don't have unbelievers as friends just to have them as friends. We have unbelievers as friends to share the gospel with them. And no doubt, Jesus, John, the disciples, they had relationships with all these people and they would share the gospel. Jesus had a relationship with Zacchaeus. Jesus had a relationship with all kinds of different priests and people, and he would share the gospel with them. And that's the point. Listen, don't unfriend all your Facebook unbelieving friends because you know what? You're a light to them. You're a light to them. Be a light. Use it as an opportunity to share the gospel with people. Peter, it gets in because of one of these relationships that John has. And so as he comes in, you know, if we move to a different gospel, it tells us that Peter immediately is at the fire. And then he's warming himself. And, and John writes it a little differently. He, he describes that there's a fire there, probably right by the entrance as he comes in. And I, just the way my mind works is I just start thinking movie and I start thinking what's happening, and, you know, I can just see the scene. As Peter's standing outside the, at the walls, and, you know, there's the gate, and he sees John in there. Jesus is surrounded by soldiers and all of this. And he's standing out here, and he's like, what am I going to do? i got to make a move. I told Jesus I wouldn't deny him. I told him that I would, you know, I would go to death for him and all this. How am I going to get in here? He's thinking, here's the walls. And John goes, dude, come here. Come here, come on. Come on in. I'm, I'm, I know this gal, you know. And, and, and then so Peter... Immediately finds himself. We don't know what happens to the other disciple. It doesn't tell us. But we find him standing there warming himself. Whether the fire was right by the gate or whatever, we don't know. But he, he's there warming himself. There's soldiers there. There's servants there. And the girl, the little servant girl, do you catch that? The little servant girl comes up to Peter, big Peter, fearless Peter, and says, Peter, hey, hey, uh, I know you from somewhere. And, you know, you could start to see him go like, uh, oh, no, you don't. You know, he's kind of trying to shade himself in the dark and all. And she goes, no, no, aren't you one of of those disciples? Peter says, "Oh, oh, 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 no, you got the wrong guy. No, 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 no. Immediately when he's faced with the trial, he fails. Why? Why did he fail? Well, perhaps because he wasn't prayed up. Perhaps it was because he wasn't prayed up. He was sleeping in the Garden of Eden, or in the Garden of Gethsemane there. Perhaps he wasn't ready for the trial. Isn't that how trials happen in your life? They just catch you off guard? It's not like God gives you a card, a cue, and says, hey, in 33 days, you're going to have this trial. Get ready for it. You don't know. You have to be ready. Jesus said, watch and pray. Watch and pray and get ready that you might not enter into temptation. And Peter finds himself at the foot of temptation right here. And immediately, he thinks he's going in strong. He's empowered by the flesh, just like you and I are sometimes. And he fails. No, I'm not. No, I'm not one of them. And I wonder what happened inside of Peter when those words came out of his mouth. Did his heart break a little? Was he too anxious and afraid to even think what's going on inside of him? I don't know. But what I know is Jesus said it was going to happen this way. And he told Peter to get ready for it. And he didn't listen. And I would say that the Lord is warning you that there are trials coming in your life. You need to be prepared. You need to be watchful and be ready and be prayed up for these things. In another gospel, in the gospel of Mark, it's interesting because what it says here is in Mark fourteen thirty that these are Jesus' words to Peter about his denial. Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now, the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Luke, they, they don't really give us, they say, and John, they tell us that Jesus is going to, that, that Peter is going to deny Jesus before the rooster crows. But here we see that it says that he's, the rooster going to crow twice. Now you can think like, oh, man, this is a contradiction in Scripture. Now the whole thing's not true and all of this. No, no. Let me explain it to you. Here, here is the reasoning behind this. You see, in Mark's gospel, who Mark, if you know who he is, he was the scribe of Peter. And probably it's Peter's eyewitness account of the gospel, Mark being written, probably through Peter's eyes, gives a more detailed account of what Jesus said there. Because in this time frame, I don't know if you know much about roosters and how they crow and all, but um, roosters, contrary to popular belief, don't crow because the sun's coming up. Roosters crow because temperatures are changing. And particularly in Israel, the cock-crowing hours were between midnight and 3 a.m., the first um, cock crow would come about 12:30 when the temperature would begin to drop. We see it's cold outside, Peter standing by a fire. And then we then it was typical that again at 1:30 a.m. that another rooster would crow. Jesus was saying to Peter that you're going to deny me before 1:30 a.m. You're going to deny me before the rooster crows twice. Three times you're going to do this. Peter denies it here. We hear the first cock-a-doodle-doo immediately after he says that. Mark's Gospel tells us, but he denied it in in Mark 14.68, but he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And when he went out into the gateway, the rooster crowed. Cock-a-doodle-doo. That was one down. Peter's on thin ice here. His trial is not going well, but I bet you he's praying now. Probably in deep prayer. Let's check on how Jesus is doing, verse 19. Then the high priest, then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So here Jesus begins to be questioned about who he is. Now, this is illegal. This is illegal. This is them trying to frame Jesus, set him up for him to incriminate himself. That's illegal in a Jewish court. Uh, you know, just like it is in our court, they have to have evidence before they can bring you in. They have to have some reasonable cause to bring you in to question you, and, and the high priest isn't there to question you. He's there to, to, um, to tell you, to proclaim what it is that you've done. He is, he is there to basically judge you. He's not there to question you, and yet here we find Annas beginning to question Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Now, Jesus is interesting. He just skirts the whole discipleship issue. He, he doesn't even want to bring his discipleship into this and so he goes directly to his teaching and he says oh guys what are you talking about what do i teach have you not heard me in fact i'm pretty sure you were there and you've been there and you've been there and you've been there and you've heard me teach you've heard what i've said i'm not saying anything secretly what i'm saying to you is that you need the gospel you need to repent is what his message was repent and believe Mark 1, 14 through 15 tells us this is the message that he proclaimed. Now, after John, who is John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What is the gospel? The good news of Jesus Christ, that he would come. He would become a man who would become a lamb, who would become a worm for you and I. That's the gospel. You know, he's trying to help the Jews understand that they are in desperate need of the gospel, folks, that their faulty religious system is not going to help them when it comes to the judgment of God. They will stand condemned. And you know, as you you know how that how that conversation goes as you try and talk to religious people in this day and age, you tell them listen, Jesus wants to forgive you of your sins. Well, I'm forgiven well, because I'm a good person, because I do good things and all this kind of stuff. No, 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 no. No, no, no. You're way off. You're way off. Hey, I've been there. I know it. I've done that. I, I really sincerely thought I was going to stand before God and say, but I'm pretty good. You know, I, I legitimately thought that my sins, my good deeds would outweigh my sins. How foolish. How foolish of me. I'm thankful that the Lord awoke my heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that I would believe and receive Him as my Lord and Savior, that I wouldn't be thinking that I could make my way to God by my own good deeds, by some religious system, something other than Jesus Christ. We need the gospel folks. That's what He came to proclaim to these people. And so he tells the chief priest, he tells the high priest there, Annas, "Hey, that's what I proclaim." And, and then Jesus questions him, which doesn't go well. He, he, he tells him here, why do you ask me? What Jesus is saying is, where are the charges? Why are you incriminating me? This is illegal. You're not doing it according to the way that it was prescribed to be done. You guys are out of line here. Why are you asking me? You're supposed to have the accusation set already. Not right now, though, because it's night. You're not supposed to do this at night. And Annas has no answers. Of course, when Jesus answers him that way, he gets smacked by one of the temple soldiers there. Smacks him. Literally, in the Greek, when he struck him, it's literally with a rod to the face he just smacked him now because my mind works like a movie i imagine peter warming himself hear the smack look over and seeing jesus over there you know across the courtyard being questioned just being hidden by one of these things and he's he's up next he's up next so you can imagine the fear that's gripping his heart look at verse 25 now simon peter was standing and warming himself so they did so they said to him You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Peter, Jesus is being delivered over um, to Caiaphas, which we'll pick up next week, his trial there. Jesus is steadfast his eyes are fixed upon the cross he is not going to fail the trial and I'll get to that in a minute Peter on the other hand is standing there trying to figure out how am I going to get out of this now here's what I don't want you to miss and I believe wholeheartedly and and, you know we don't we don't read emotion into the text but what I want you to understand is Peter loves Jesus he loves Jesus we know he loves Jesus he has, he has said some miraculous things. He said, that, said you know, man, when, when Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part for me, and all the, all the disciples began to go away in John chapter 6, and he looked at his disciples he said, do you guys want to go too? Peter stood up. It was Peter that stood up and said, Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of life. Where else can we go, Lord? Peter loves Jesus. He loves him. But here's the problem. He loves his life more. Here's the problem is he loves his life more. Jesus said, if you love anything more than you love me, you're not worthy to be called my disciple. And we've all been there. So we can relate. So we're not going to be too hard on Peter because we've done it ourselves. And I'm thankful for that last song. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. His forgiveness is enough. He forgives us. Listen, Peter's denial here is not the unpardonable sin, folks. Contrary to popular Christian belief, the unpardonable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now... What I'm saying is, you know, don't do it. Jesus said, "If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father." But what I'm telling you is that that's a continual denial. That is not a one-time denial. That is not I'm I'm scared of my life. You know, I'm going to die here. You know, I deny Christ, and that's not what he's that. That's not what it means. What it means is a continual denial, a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Peter is genuinely repentant. We'll see here as he goes away, and he's not weeping with a worldly sorrow. He's weeping with a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. How do we know? Because that's what happens. See, we have, the, we have the ability to see in the future where Peter is living in the moment here. And so I say all that to say Peter's going to fail, but it's not the end. Perhaps you're here today and you're thinking, man, I've been Peter. I've failed. It's not the end. God is a gracious God. He loves us, and he wants to forgive us, you know? And we have to get over ourselves a little bit and humble ourselves and ask for that forgiveness and bring it before him. But here, here we find Peter, and he is, again, once before, uh, the accusations are flying. He's nervously warming himself by the fire. Everybody's looking at him, and uh, he's asked once again, are, are you one of his disciples? And Peter says, I am not. And, and, and what, what's interesting is out of nowhere, I bu- you know, it's almost like this dude out of the dark walks up to the fire, and he goes, huh, because I was in the garden where you cut my, my, my relative's ear off. Jesus put it back on, and I'm pretty sure it was you. And at that point, you know, the, the, one of the other gospels, both, both Matthew and Luke describe for us that Peter begins to curse himself. In these moments, he begins to say, uh, you know, curse me, God, if I am the man that would stand with Jesus. I'm not one of his disciples. He begins to curse, and, and he becomes indignant. He's trying to save his life. And in the midst, he's denying his Lord. And so, as Peter says that one last time, he denies the Lord. All of a sudden, cock it'll do, And I want you... If you can, just grasp what happens in this moment. All simultaneously, cock-a-doodle-doo. It's an eerie moment. Luke chapter 22, verse 61, and then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. In that moment, cock-a-doodle-doo, boom, their eyes lock. Peter remembered what Jesus had said, that he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. Peter was reminded that he would disown his own Lord. And then it says in Luke 22, verse 62, and he went out and wept. He went out and wept. He, it broke his heart. Now Judas did the same thing. He, he we'll see later he goes out and weeps too, but it's a different kind of weeping. Peter is genuinely sorry that he denied his Lord. And we know that from his actions. Judas, we see, hangs himself. It's a worldly sorrow that does not lead to repentance. It's sorry that I got caught. Sorry that I got caught. Peter is, I'm sorry I denied you, Lord. Forgive me. And it's a turning away from your sin. That's what repentance is. And what we need to understand is that God is a God of forgiveness. Therefore, we need to be a people of repentance, right? That's the way it works. You don't just get forgiveness. You come to the Lord and you ask for it. And he gives it to you. He extends it to you. He wants you to repent. Now, repentance, again, is turning away from your sin and going the other way. It's not, it, not that you're ever going to struggle with that again because you may. But in that moment, it's a decision that you're making that's saying, I'm not going to do that again. And I believe Peter made that decision in these moments. Somewhere after happening here, after, you know, we'll see in John 20 when they get back together, the resurrection of Christ and all, that that Peter somehow has a change of heart. Because when Jesus ascends and Peter is delivered to the... uh, um, the same people that crucified Jesus. It says in Acts chapter four, verse uh, verses nineteen through twenty. But Peter and John answered them. Whether here's Peter and John. They're standing before the two disciples that are in this moment in the garden. They're the courtyard. They're being being discipled. It's they're they're being brought before the the same people that crucified Christ. And they are being questioned just like Jesus was, and they're being told that you better not talk about that gospel, and you better not talk about that Savior, Jesus. He is not our Messiah. You better stop with the language, and they say this, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. What we have seen and heard. Back a little bit in verse 13, it says that now that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You see, repentance produces power in our life and a boldness in Christ to stand against our temptation. When we repent to God, we turn away from our sin and we begin to pray intently about that sin and say, Lord, protect me from this, you begin to watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. Guess what? You become bold in your faith against that. But what can happen is we think like, oh, I'll never do that. Isn't that what Peter did? Who is he trusting in? He's trusting in himself. I'll never do that. I'll never deny you, Lord. I'll never do that. And yet, what does he do? He denies the Lord because he's operating in his own power. If you are here today and you are, are, you know, prideful enough to say this, that there is not something that you would do, then you're opening yourself up for that very sin. You know that? If you are sitting here going, I'd never commit adultery on my wife. I would never cheat on my wife. I would never do this. I love her way too much. She is so dear to me and all that kind of stuff. Be careful. Be very careful because you are standing very... You could very well be standing in your own power. And the Lord and the enemy may say, well, let's see how strong you really are. Lord, stop protecting this one in this area and let's see what happens. Let's see if they can stand on their own because they certainly think they can. Listen, I'm telling you that I... I'm desperately wicked, and I need God in every moment of my life. There's not a single thing that I wouldn't do if the Lord and the Holy Spirit wouldn't be upon me, keeping me, helping me, me praying about these things in my life. Listen, there, there are things that may, maybe there, there are things in my life that I would be caught up in and I'd be swept away from. But if I'm too prideful, I might think, oh, I'll never do that. Beware of your own power. Because the Bible says you're powerless against sin. But in Christ, you can resist all things. You can, with the Holy Spirit, you can do all things. You can resist temptation. But be careful. There's one point that I want to make very quickly, and I don't have time to really go into it, but I believe the reason why, the main reason why Peter failed and Jesus was faithful had to do everything with who they feared. Had everything to do with who they feared. Because Peter feared man, and that's why he failed. Jesus feared God, and that's why he was faithful. Jesus grew in the knowledge and the wisdom of God. What does the Bible say about the fear of God? That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. And in Psalm 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Jesus feared God, like, he knows God. He is God. But at the very same time, he was a man, and he feared God. And I think the church has forgotten the idea that we've got to fear God. Like, we're talking about the God of the universe here. We're not talking about Jesus as my homeboy. We're talking about the God of the universe. And listen, we, we as, and as much as we want to, um, you know, have this, this, homeboyish relationship with God and yes he loves you and yeah he is your friend and all of these kind of things but don't forget he's God do not forget who he is because I'm telling you what happens is we get in this flippant worship mode and we're drinking our coffee and we're we're you know we're we're talking to our friends in worship and we're we're um you know we don't pray anymore we don't do any of this stuff cuz we have no fear of God And I'm not talking about, yeah, there is a time to tremble before the Lord. I promise you, if he materialized in this place, you would be on your face lickety-split. Lickety-split. But is he not here? Is he not in this place? He is here, and yet we are, I'm not saying you, but I'm saying we can be very flippant about how we worship our God. Listen, the fear of man is a snare. You come into this place and you're more worried about the dude next to you, what he thinks, than you are about what God thinks. You're more worried about what your coworker thinks, the dude in the cubicle next to you, about the servants that you're listening to, more than you are about the God that you serve. You're more concerned about, you know, what man, how you appear before man, more than you care about how you appear before the Lord. And God is saying, don't forget to fear me. I'm a jealous God and I want your worship and I'm not going to contend with man. Peter feared man. He tried to save his own life in this moment and that's why he failed. The fear of man is a snare. I want to tell you, I don't have the time to go into it. This book right here, when, when uh, people are big and God is small, you need to read this book. If you don't think that you uh, fear man, you need to read this book. It's by Edward Welch. It's an older book. It is a phenomenal book about the fear of God and the fear of man and how we oftentimes, not even unknowingly, we make man so much bigger than God. You know, let me ask you, how long did it take you to get ready this morning? And who were you getting ready for? You getting ready for the people that are going to be here or are you getting ready to to stand holy? You know, we get ready before the Lord by prayer, by supplication, by preparing ourselves to come and worship this holy God this almighty God, we get ourselves ready physically for man, don't we? And we're worried about what we're wearing, and we're taking our selfies and posting our pictures so that everybody thinks we're cool. And, and the Lord, God is just saying, man, well, what are you guys doing? Who are you worshiping? That's what this book is about. And I'm telling you, if you, if you don't think that you have fear of man in, in any area of your life, you're fooling yourself. There are so many areas in my own life. As I read through this thing, I'm just like, oh, my gosh, Lord, help me. Help me. Fear the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Fear God. Don't lose sight of God. Yes, tremble before God. Tremble before Him. It's okay to tremble before Him. But to have that holy awe of who He is, that you, you, are, you have no right to be in His throne room. You have no right to be there but he wants you there and so he made a way for you. He sent his son because he loves you that much. Do you love him that much that you would care enough to fear him more than you fear people on the horizontal? Man, be careful. Be prayerful and fear of the Lord. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your goodness in our lives and God, what what an incredible indictment upon us. We want to just ask you for forgiveness this morning, God, for for not giving you the proper place in our lives, for not loving you the way that we ought to, for not fearing and trembling before you, God, the way that we should. You are a holy God. You are an awesome God. And uh, we, we just want to, this morning, acknowledge, Lord, that you're here, that you're amongst us, Lord, and we want to just bow before you You're holy. You're awesome. Lord, You are King of kings. You are Lord of lords. You are almighty. You are all powerful. Lord, You are all knowing. You know the wickedness in our own hearts, and yet You love us still, Lord. You are amazing, Lord. May we we be amazed by You this morning. So much so that we care more about what You think than anybody else. God, we're asking this morning for you to help us in this area of fearing you more than we fear man. That we would make... It's the cry of John the Baptist, really, Lord, that I would decrease, that you might increase. Lord, it's the cry of saying, I don't want to do anything that doesn't bring you glory. Lord, save us from ourselves. This morning we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would release the bonds of the fear of man in our life. Your word tells us the fear of man is a trap. It's a snare. But you also say in that same verse that we can run to you and we're safe. We want to run into your arms this morning, God. We want to fear you more. Help us to be watchful and prayerful, Lord. Help us to just remember who it is that we're serving that although you love us and you're our friend, you're also our God. So we lift you up, God. We praise you. We thank you. We ask you to continue to have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.